alive. Some of you are. It's all good. Uh, grab your copy of God's Word tonight. Go to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Continue to make our way through the book of Romans. Uh, we will look at two verses tonight. And then uh, for those of you who like to read ahead, uh, you can begin to read uh, after this sermon. Not right now, but after this sermon. Uh, verses 18 through 32 will be what we'll look at next week. So uh, just two verses tonight, and then next week we'll take a, a much larger section uh, together. So Romans chapter 1, I trust that you're doing well. If you would, stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 1, looking at verses 16 and 17, this is God's Word to us. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together this evening. Father, we come before you tonight. Having exalted your name, thinking about who you are and, and your son that you sent to die for us. And now as we turn our attention to your word, we need to ask that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would convict us of areas where we need to change and grow and become more like you. And Father, we know that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. So we ask that it would do its work and pierce us asunder, making us aware of where we're falling short of being conformed to your image. And Father, we also are aware very much so tonight that we're not the only people who have been entrusted with this message, not the only people who will gather together for church tonight. Think of our friends at Calvary Baptist Church in Republic. Ask that you would uh, guide them as they uh, seek to find a, a new pastor. And we ask that you would allow their gospel ministry to increase. You think of uh, First Baptist in Willard and, and their new pastor who's just arrived we ask that you would, uh, again, allow these churches to increase in their gospel witness, um, not for their fame, not for their glory, Father, but ultimately for yours. So again, we ask then, in light of all these things, that you would, again, move through and in us tonight. I ask that you would help me to uh, just be freed up to preach your word, exactly what you desire me to do. It's in your son's name, I pray, amen. When we think of great messages, we may think of great lines de uh, delivered throughout history. Um, we're not prone to really remember much content of speeches that are ever delivered, but we are prone to remember important or infamous or famous line. You think of JFK in the middle of his inauguration into president uh, into his presidency saying ask not what your country can do for you but what you can do for your country. I always think of Dr. Martin Luther King because in high school I was tasked to uh, repeat in a theater class a speech that was given we were to to deliver it um, and you weren't allowed to classify a sermon as a speech. I, I tried that route as a senior in high school. I 
So let me bring you a sermon, a well-known sermon. This is a, a speech of sorts that was flatly rejected. So I did the next best thing. I found a pastor who had delivered a speech. I remember very well delivering, uh, not as well and not as importantly as Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Or we can think of his mountaintop speech where he uh, declares that he's been to the top of the mountaintop and he's seen the other side and that we shall overcome. You might think of Ronald Reagan famously declaring, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And I, I'm not suggesting that you know these things live. Most of you um, weren't even alive when infamously President Bill Clinton, who I never thought I would ever reference in a sermon, <laughs> declared in the 1996 State of the Union address, the era of big government is over. It was an infamous line. Perhaps, though, and this is one of my favorite lines that's ever been delivered, and oddly enough, and I don't think it will surprise you, it wasn't by a United States president or political figure. It's actually delivered across the pond. Right at the beginning of World War II, Winston Churchill was tasked to form a government bearing down and facing down Adolf Hitler's continued advance. And in that opening speech, to which Parliament was very cold to him, colder than some who've rejected your advances to go on a date, <laughs> which is pretty cold. He said, I would say to the House, as I have said to those who have joined this government, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. Well, tonight we look at an even greater message that was delivered, probably one of the best lines in all of Scripture we consider tonight these two verses. They're the theme of the entire book of Romans. And I want us to look closely at them because they encapsulate the message that Paul is delivering to these believers. And so, just to keep you on your toes as usual, uh, not as usual, it's just whatever the text has to offer me, I believe, I hope. Uh, instead of four points or three points, we just have two points tonight. So the first thing I would encourage you to look at is the scope of the message. The scope of the message. What is the scope of Paul's message here? He says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. We're reminded last week where we left off, he says, so much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Well, what is that message? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Having just announced his intention to preach, Paul, like any good pastor, begins to let it rip. And he rips hard out of the gate. You ever been around intense people? I like intense people. People don't like, tend to enjoy intense people. I enjoy intense people. Uh, people don't really care to like Pete Rose uh, in, in baseball. A lot of different reasons why, but a lot of them think him to be arrogant. I think him to be intense. Any person that will tell you that they would wear a gasoline suit and run through hell to play a game where you knock around a ball with a wooden bat has got to have a screw loose and is way too intense. I like intense people. I think Paul's intense here. 
this, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why is Paul not ashamed to preach this gospel of Jesus Christ? What is this message? Well, he continues on, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. This message of the gospel is the, the, the message of Jesus Christ. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was a real person who lived and died and was buried and rose again on the third day. Paul will tell the Corinthian church, this is of first importance, what I'm delivering to you. That Christ died, was buried, and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That's the message that the Apostle Paul has in mind here. He's not ashamed of that message. Why? Because it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It's this message, the message of Christ and him crucified, that is the power of the gospel. That's what's driving people to be saved. You want to see people's lives transformed? You want to see people grow in their walk with Christ? You want to see true, radical Reformation in the lives of those around you, this is the message that will do it. This is the message that will do it. This isn't a clean yourself up message. This isn't a try and do better message. This is a you can't clean yourself up message. This is a you can't be better message. Paul's actually going to build on that argument throughout chapters 1 through 4. But he wants them to understand this is the power. There is power behind this message. It's earth-shattering power. It's life-transforming power. It, it's necessary for you to be tapped into the right power source. It's necessary for you to be plugged in to this. Always really funny when you diagnose a problem that you're having only to find out that the simple solution is it's just not plugged in. We're trying to troubleshoot. We're on the phone with technicians. And inevitably, somebody will ask, well, is it actually plugged in? And you'll be like, Psh, come on. I'm not, I'm not dumb. Of course it's plugged in. Of course it's plugged in. And then you go, I think somebody must have bumped it out because it wasn't plugged in. I could have sworn this thing was plugged in. <laughs> My stupid roommate's cat probably did something to unplug it, and that's how it happened. People are like, you live in a dorm. You're not allowed to have animals, and there's no animals in here. Well, it must have been the Holy Spirit. He just was full, and he just came by and whoosh, just unplugged it. The Christians, I think, struggle in their lives because they are not tapped into the right power source. They're trying to tap into their own power. They're trying to tap into their own strength. Why is it that this message must be plugged into? Because it is this message that not only will save you, but it will keep you saved. Understand that. It will save you and keep you saved. Because it is a life transformation forming message it is an absolutely life-altering message because as you continue to preach the gospel to yourself daily 
as you're reminded that I am the chief of sinners, like the Apostle Paul says, as you're reminded of the fact that you cannot save yourself, as you're reminded of the fact that Jesus did live, die, buried, rose again, and is reigning and ruling, that's what gives you the power to press on. That's what gives you the power to continue to march on. That's what gives you the power to get up tomorrow morning and go into your class. Not because I need to, not because I have to, not because I want to get a degree or I want to move on or I want to become the next whoever or whatever, but because God has ordained that I will walk with him and talk with him. We'll communicate with him. And the people that he has brought along the pathway are people that are divinely placed there for me to reach. And that's what gets me up in the morning. Our days are not ordered in a way that we know the good ones or the bad ones. I can tell you that from this morning. If I could tell you when good days were going to happen or bad days are going to happen, I would have stayed in bed this morning. I dropped Harper off at daycare. Got to get to a lecture, talk about end time stuff. You know, everything that's burning everybody's mind up. They're just eating it up. This stuff really matters. Go to get coffee to keep myself awake during my own lecture. It's a tough life. <laughs> get my coffee, get in the car. I, and I just remembered I never even got to drink this coffee. That's wasted. Back out, turn around, and the car just dies. Sent Jess a picture at 8.30 this morning of my car being towed away to the mechanic. Is God divinely at act? Is he at work in those situations? Is there something greater afoot than that? I believe so based on some of the conversations that I was able to have with different people today. I believe so. This is power of God to salvation. But we're talking about the scope here. The scope is, and, and read these words carefully, for this will be something that we discuss often in this book, so we might as well get it out of the way. Who is the gospel for? Who is this gospel message for? It's for everyone who believes. Now, you may hear from time to time people suggest that Jesus Christ died for a certain amount of people. That he has, in his death, secured salvation for a particular group. It seems that the Apostle Paul, though, is arguing that while that is true in a large sense, and that there will be people who reject Jesus doesn't willfully determine that some will spend eternity in hell. This big question of who is the elect and who is not. Spurgeon famously said, we don't know. For if we did, we'd probably run around trying to figure out, lifting up each other's shirts to see if a big E was painted on our back to know that's who I'm supposed to share the gospel with. So if you want to know who you should talk to about Jesus and you want to know who might come to know Christ, I'm going to tell you everybody that you come in contact with. I'm going to tell you that you share Jesus with every person that you come in contact with. Because Paul tells us that this gospel power is for everyone who 
believe. They hear the message of the gospel and they believe. Now, this is not some type of mere mental assent, like somebody can tell us, answer some questions about following after Jesus. This is genuine belief. Some of you sitting in the room potentially believe yourself to be genuinely converted because you can rattle off some facts about the Bible. You can tell us about the ark. You can tell us about Jonah. You can tell us about Jacob. You can tell us about Joseph. You can tell us about Cain and Abel and Jacob and Esau. You can tell us about the disciples. I'm going to tell you this right now. When you stand before God, he's not going to say, well, you've got to make it through this test with an 80% score. So let's begin with the 12 disciples. Start rattling off names. And that's Peter, James, John, Greg, Charles. I was like, no, not even close. Let's move on to the next category, 12 tribes of Israel. Navajo. No. <laughs> no. Everyone who believes this gospel message is one that puts their faith in Christ. Notice he goes on for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, here's what can happen sometimes when we're not careful Bible readers. And I don't think you're lazy enough to do this, but I, I have met people who are. So we're going to assume that none of you are this way, but people outside are. They see this and go, for the Jew first and also the Greek. Why does Paul limit Jew and Greek? Well, he's thinking here in terms of two large people groups, Jew and Gentile. So the covenant people of God in the Old Testament and then everybody else. Paul is arguing there is not one nation. There is not one people group. There is not one person on the planet who is not worthy of having someone bring the message of the gospel to them and share it with them. That's the scope of this message. The scope of this message is it goes to everyone, everywhere. And I got to be real honest with you. We're real good, maybe, about taking it to people here, we have to ask ourselves, though, why do major cities remain largely unreached? Why do you, why does Springfield, despite its position as being the buckle of the Bible belt, continue to have people who don't know Jesus Christ? Could it perhaps be that we don't actually believe that this gospel message is for everyone who believes? Paul highlights the fact that this Jew and Greek distinction carries and crosses all kinds of borders and barriers and breakdowns of socioeconomic privilege and different things. Listen, you hear constantly in the world around you a lot of conversations about different types of privileges and advantages and people who are broken down and people who are oppressed. Can I just tell you the greatest message that the people around you need to know is not a political party that will rescue them from some sort of blatant human oppression, but is to be liberated from the bondage and captivity of sin. That's what people need. You can tell I'm fired up about this because I think we've lost our energy on this point. 
I think we've lost our, our gumption. I'm not just talking about here. I'm just talking about people who claim to know Christ. If you really have been transformed by this, if the gospel has really taken hold of your life, you can't help but talk about it with other people. It doesn't matter who you are or, or the people around you. You can't help but tell them. I get it. You can't. You're, you're in the drive-thru, getting something to go. You're not holding up. Please don't be the person who's like holding up the rest of us and then causing us to sin uh, because we're mad at you because you've chosen this moment at like the middle of the lunch rush in the drive-thru to be like, have you considered the implications of following Jesus? You like pull out a little whiteboard and you're like, number one, you start to write it. Number two, and the back of it, I'm like, I'm going to kill him in the name of the Lord. Like, Old Testament wrath, pour it down. Like, I'm just calling it down from heaven. And you're like, implication three. And the guy's like, dude, you've got to go. We've got we to serve these people their bagels. Like, let's go. I don't know where that is, but you've probably been there. I understand that not every situation is conducive for you to get into a full-on gospel conversation. But I do think that it is possible for you to begin by small habits and ways that you speak to people and interact with them for them to begin to wonder what is wrong with that person in a good way. It takes every bit of me to not lose my patience when things take too long. It takes every bit of me to remind myself that the people that I interact with, it may not be their fault that the things are going the way that they are. And even those interactions can lead to conversation. So I'd ask you tonight, as we consider this, first and foremost, to, to the non-Christian friends who may be with us this evening, have you even considered this message? Have you trusted in this message? Can you point to a time in your life, and I understand, you may not be able to remember everything about that time. I, re I understand that you may not remember what you said or all of the little nitty-gritty details that were there. But has there been a moment where your life has changed as a result of the message of the gospel? And if there hasn't been, continuing to come here on Wednesday nights and trying to act this way and trying to force yourself to be a Christian will never work. Because unless God truly changes your heart, it's impossible for you to walk like a genuine Christian. For those of you who have grown up and believe yourself to be genuinely converted, I'm not trying to make you question or doubt your salvation. Trust me, that's the last thing I want to do. I grew up under preaching that was like that. Anytime people were like, you got to know everything about when you came to know Christ. And I'm like, dude, I'm 15. I got saved 10 years ago. I can barely remember what I had lunch for last Thursday. I remember being just so manipulated into, into questioning a lot of different things of what I believed. I don't desire that for you. But there are some sitting in the room who believe themselves to be genuinely converted, and you know you are not. So have you trusted in this message? Then I would just ask you, are you sharing this message regularly? And then if you're not, is it because you believe that there are people who are outside the scope? You know, it's really interesting that in 
2020, we really think that we've kind of nailed down that everybody kind of respects and likes each other. And that is just simply nothing could be further from the truth. Because we're tempted to like things and people that we like and not like things and people we don't like. So are there people who you just are like, they'll never trust them? You obviously are not tapped into the same power source the Apostle Paul is. Here's a good baseline question to ask yourself. And this is going to seem extreme. It may seem radical, but I'll explain it in just a second. If you don't believe that the gospel message that you share can transform the life of a terrorist, you're not tapped into this gospel message. You say, David, that's extreme. Yeah, but you got to understand the guy who's writing this is a former terrorist. The guy who is saying, I'm not ashamed of this message, dragged people out of houses and killed them. He was a terrorist. If you don't believe that your gospel message is powerful enough to transform the life of a terrorist, you're not tapped into the gospel message that is found here. So we see, first of all, the scope. And then lastly, we see the center of the message. What lies at the center of Paul's message of the gospel? How are we supposed to understand what is most important in understanding how this message moves us forward? Well, simply put, it is faith. Look at verse 17. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. This isn't faith in an ethereal type of pie in the sky. We're kind of just holding on to benign faith. This is what a lot of times atheists will accuse Christians of, just kind of just a random kind of faith that isn't very specific. That's not Christianity. That's not what is happening here. Paul writes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Because as a Christ follower, what it means for the righteousness of God to be revealed from faith to faith is you stop relying on anything other than Jesus Christ to save you. You, you stop looking to other things that merit your righteousness because you understand that it's faith in Christ alone that allows for God's righteousness to be placed on your behalf. This is a big theological term called imputation, where God's righteousness is written onto our account as if it has always been this way. But what is it that does it? It's our faith in Christ alone. That's what is going on here. The righteousness is revealed to us as we trust and rest in Christ alone as the only means by which we can be saved. Too much. Listen here closely because this is where Western Christians struggle. Too much of our time is lived focusing on ourselves instead of Christ. We want to live in our own power according to our own faith and accomplishments rather than in Christ alone. That's where we live. I'll give you a perfect illustration of this. Um, as you know, I'm from Iowa. I grew up there. Uh, Jess is from Michigan. Uh, I guess last year now, uh, my sister married her boyfriend, Sam, who's from Texas. One of the little games that we like to play, especially during this time of the year, 
is we like to give Sam a hard time about how cold he gets very quickly. Um, it helps, too, that my brother, who's naturally cold, lives in Mississippi and is never around. So just kind of qualify all of these things for you. One of the things that we love to do is Jess will sometimes give me a hard time about if I run down to the store, even on a day like today, I will not change out of gym shorts that I'm wearing, just throw a coat on over a t-shirt and go. And sometimes even in sandals. Because honestly, I'm married, I don't care no more. Um, the fact that I'm this dressed up, you're welcome. But we, when we're with Sam, we love to give him a hard time because he's like wearing two layers, like a long sleeve tee, a hoodie, all of these different things. And he loves to joke back that basically all this is is a way for us to assert our Midwestern dominance. Like we're basically like taking him to task and asserting that we're tough and rough and tumble because we're from the Midwest. And I was thinking about that because that's what we're we, we limited clothing is required because we're asserting our dominance. Christians, a lot of times, want to claim Christ but clothe themselves in themselves. They want to claim Christ alone. He saves us, yeah, Christ alone. But what they're resting in, what they're operating in, and what they're living in is themselves. And they're trying to assert their dominance over a world that is corrupt and in need of redeeming by saying, look at how tough I am. As if that's some measure or some way of saying, I am superior to you. This is where legalists come into play. Like, I, I trust in Christ alone for, did you read your Bible? Where you been the last three weeks? I have no functional relationship with Christ. I'm not walking with him, talking with him. I'm not filled with the spirit, but I'm doing these things that prove that I am a Christian. And Christ is going, dude, read the book. And not just read it for reading sake, but read it to comprehend it. Because he says the last part, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Those who are truly Christ will constantly and consistently live by faith in every area of their life. I'm walking with Christ. I'm trying to temper my reactions to what Christ's expectations are because I am trusting in him alone for my life. We're guilty a lot of times of loving this passage. Think back to the early days when Christian hip-hop music explodes on your scene. You've got the 116 Church group that shows up, and here's all these people throwing down lyrics about what it means to be not ashamed of the gospel. And we love to proclaim this message. But the Apostle Paul saying it's not enough just to proclaim it. We have to live it, too. Unfortunately, we use the expression, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it probably is a duck. In the Christian world, the primary 
contrast between believers and unbelievers is sheep and goats. And I think there are a lot of people who have been tricked into believing themselves, and they're trying to walk like a sheep, talk like a sheep, even smell like a sheep and look like a sheep. But if we were to really pull back the layers, they're just goats. They're people who don't genuinely know him because it's all based around something other than this. Do better, be better, try harder, do more. The just shall live by faith. So where tonight, where are you placing your faith in regards to your eternity? Is it in your ability to clean yourself up? Are you really resting in Christ alone? And then are there areas? See, here's the deal. Christians love to treat salvation as a get out of hell free card. In other words, the gospel message is good to get me out of hell. But as far as making me more like Christ, that's okay. I mean, there were Christian comedians who used to make this uh, a, a joke in their little shticks about what it means to follow Christ. Yeah, I'm saved from hell, but I really want God to have a challenge when we get to going to heaven. How dare you? This is not anything of what it looks like to follow after him. You may genuinely be converted tonight, but there are areas in your life where you know, I'm trying to do this in my own power and my own strength and not relying in the power of Christ. So the question ultimately at the end of the night is we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing with this message? We can't afford to keep this message to ourselves. We can't afford to be silent. And we might be tempted to remain silent, but in the end, that silence will cause people the opportunity to know real hope through the greatest message ever delivered. Much like Churchill, Christians need to offer Christ in regards to living for him, nothing but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. I just want to remind us tonight that this fight that we're fighting is not against the Axis powers. It's not against a political party or a political group or an ideological group. This battle that you're fighting tonight with delivering this message is against principalities, powers, the rules of darkness of this age against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 6. That's who we're fighting against when we take this message to those that are hurting. Let's pray.